so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. I feel like um, I'm always doing the transition music here. Right now, I'm thinking Doug because my son has been watching Doug. forgot about that show. That's Isn't cool. that great? That was amazing, Josh. Well Thanks. done. <laughs> Brent left us. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the virtual studio today are my three co-hosts. We'll start with you, Megan Smith. What's up? Hello there. Always a little shy. Uh, also, okay, so here's your not shy co-host, uh, Julie Masson. That's right. I am not shy, ever. Definitely glad to welcome Julie back from last week. I uh, heard a lot of good feedback from her uh, inside look at, or her, you know, different look at the ERLC content for the week. And we're going to do that again in just a few minutes. And also with us is your regular podcast host, Brent Leatherwood. Hola, amigos. Hope it's a great week for you. That was my shy voice. Hola, yeah, Megan. I was I was wondering, like, Brent was really holding back there. So anyway, it's look, guys, it's an exciting day uh, to podcast. We'll just go ahead and you know, break the fourth wall. It's a big day for us here at the RLC because we're recording this on Thursday morning, and we are doing our Evangelicals for Life digital event, which is the first time we've ever done this all online. So I would encourage you to check it out. But by the time this airs, you will it will have already happened, but you will be able to see a lot of those videos online if you do miss today's stuff. And we encourage you to check it out because it's going to be great. Uh, we've got a lot of pro-life stuff going on across the organization, and, and that is really our heartbeat as a Christian and Southern Baptist organization. And people need to tune in because among other voices that they will hear today is podcast favorite, podcast legend, Benjamin Watson. That's right. That's right. Remember that time he was a guest and I, I tried to juke him with you know that trick question about quarterbacks, and he like owned me. Yes, he totally owned you. He juked us out of our shoes. Yeah, I mean, I I was left dead on the field as he totally passed by me and went to the end zone, which you know that's what he was known for. Man, so it is going to be a great show today. We're really excited about. It. And later in the show, we are going to interview Julie. We were going to do it last week, but you know we were having so much fun and covered so much ground that we decided to just hold the interview for a week and do it later in today's show. So Julie. You're up first, so you can get us started. Tell us how we're going to talk about, or tell us, you know, your inside look at the ERLC this week. All right. Just like last week, I'm going to walk through some of the things our organization shared on social media. Last week, I started with Facebook. I'm going to do Twitter this week, just to change things up. Are you sure that's a good idea? Well, I think it is this week, because we had some really positive engagement in the dumpster fire that I call Twitter. So this week, or this past week, we released our public policy agenda, and we're really thankful to see so many respond positively, because like I said, sometimes Twitter responses are not so great. Well, we released our 2021 public policy agenda, which highlights some of our core policy priorities, which we will advocate 
um, with cooperation of the Southern Baptist congregations. So Tim Labinus, the executive director of the Baptist Convention of Iowa, quote tweeted our initial tweet about the public policy agenda and said, thank you, Dr. Moore and ERLC staff. We are grateful for the good work you and the staff have accomplished in preparing this document and the justice, freedom, and mercy priorities that it describes. Tim Labinus is someone I know personally. He helped mentor my husband and I when we were first married because we were pursuing going overseas with the International Mission Board. So he and his wife played a huge, important role in our lives. They are who we talked to when we were overseas and helped debrief us. So I have a lot of respect for Tim. So it's really fun for me to see Tim praise the work of another SBC entity. Julie, I just want to come in and back you up there because Tim Labinus is one of the best guys uh, leading in the SBC, somebody that's an incredible partner for us here at the ERLC, and we are thankful for the good work that he's doing there in Iowa. By the way, I can't let this opportunity to talk about Julie. I know we're going to interview her later, but to talk about Julie, she is a native Iowan. Is that right, Julie? You're a native Iowan? I am very much a native Iowan. Yeah, okay. So that's what very I thought. And you can it. you can tell it comes out in the accent. And also, uh, Julie, don't let us forget Wait, to talk to you. Hold up. I would like to clarify, I don't have an accent. I'm lacking an accent. Iowans are accentless. We'll just let the audience decide on that one. And anyway, don't let us forget to talk to you about your time overseas as we do the interview, because that's something that's, that's really important and fascinating and stuff that we can learn from. It's also why you have this weird fascination with all things European. And so anyway, look forward to talking about that later in the show. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. All right. And other Twitter news, there's another guy that I follow on Twitter who I'm very thankful for. I believe he's a pastor and involved with Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. His name is Nathaniel Williams. He shared a link to our public policy agenda that came from the Biblical Recorder. And this is what he said, a fantastic public policy agenda for 2021. And then he had check marks for each of these. Opposing Equality Act, protecting Hyde Amendment, religious liberty, pro-life bills, foster and adoption care, refugees, a legislative solution to DACA. So grateful for ERLC's work. So I really appreciated that Nathaniel shared that. And as a social media person who likes to craft tweets and Instagram posts, I really appreciated that he used the checkmark emojis. I thought it was easy for people to read. That's right. It was a very, it was a very visually appealing tweet. A good, good presentation, if you will, on the Twitters. It's a great presentation on the Twitters. All right, I'm going to move over to Instagram. We're going to continue to talk a little bit more about that public policy agenda because when we put out our first post about not only our public policy agenda, but also our DC team and all of the fabulous work they're doing there, I hate to use this word, but I feel like things just kind of exploded in a good way. We instantly had a lot of people commenting and thanking our most popular post from the last week was our very first post where we shared this quote. We work in Washington with joy, no matter who or what party is in power, because our mission is not defined by cultural values or voting patterns. Our mission is defined by a person, Jesus Christ. And we had several comments on that post. Stephanie G. said, thankful for everything the ERLC does. Jamie W. said, amen, hashtag all about Jesus. Susan L. said, thank you, praying for you all. And you guys, Jamie Ivy, she shared to her Instagram stories, our Capital Conversation podcast, and her comment said, I'm so happy to hear about this policy from an organization I trust. Jamie Ivy, that's a big deal. 
That is a big deal. And uh, we we obviously love and appreciate Jamie Ivey. She's got a great podcast. Highly recommend that to you, as well as our, our partners up in D.C. with their Capital Conversations podcast. Our, our audience is very familiar with them. And look, it doesn't surprise me that uh, our public policy agenda uh, really caught a lot of attention over the past week. It's a it's a moment in culture that a lot of folks uh, are paying attention to what is going on in Washington. We've got a, a new administration that is in the White House. Uh, Democrats uh, have now taken control of both houses of Congress. It's just a lot of attention focused to it. And look, we are uh, we we bring a missions mindset right to what we do. We are the missions agency for the Southern Baptist Convention in the public square, and the public policy agenda that we release each year is is one of the main ways that we serve as the voice of Southern Baptists in the public square. And so it doesn't surprise me at all. It's There's a lot of great content in there. I would encourage folks to, to check it out if you haven't already, to just see the various policies uh, that we are advocating for um, in culture, in courtrooms, and on Capitol Hill. That's right. All right. Lastly, we're going to move to Facebook, and we're going to dovetail a little bit from our public policy agenda, although we did share that on Facebook as well. So we shared a post that was actually written by Josh Wester. And here's what we said. Instead of acting as cultural critics screaming into the void of social media, we should see ourselves as missionaries with a people to love and a gospel to share. This came from Josh's post called Gender, Sexuality, in the Biden Administration. We actually shared it twice on Facebook this past week because it was a topic that we actually, we had people writing us. We ha- actually even had someone on Twitter direct message us and ask about it and ask if we had spoken about this and Uh, Members of our team were able to help me get this woman some really helpful resources from the ERLC. But this was a really interesting piece. And Josh, I would love to hear you comment a little bit about why we wrote it, why it was important to share during this time. Yeah, thanks, Julie, for that. This is a really important topic because it is one where Christians have both deep convictions and we also want to display like deep sensitivity because anytime that we're dealing with issues of sexuality, uh, we are oftentimes talking about issues related to brokenness and where sin manifests itself in ways that are deeply personal. And so uh, with the Biden administration, they came out and had uh, a number of things happen related to gender and sexuality. And I felt like it was important for us to address that. Like you said, we at the ERLC had a ton of questions and comments incoming, and I understand it. I mean, for a lot of Christians, they're watching the world change around them. They're watching the culture take steps uh, down the path of the sexual revolution that we know uh, because we are Christians who embrace God's design for uh, human sexuality and what it means to be male and female. We know where that ends. We know where that leads, and it it is nowhere good. And so Christians are deeply unsettled by these things. And so uh, as the Biden administration was was really, in some sense, handing uh, some victories over to uh, proponents of the sexual revolution. I wanted to try to take the opportunity to help Christians think well about what this means and how to respond. And the truth is that we we're Christians. We have the we have the gospel, and we trust in a sovereign God. And so, rather than responding out of fear, we need to think of our think of ourselves as missionaries who can respond in love. When people are uh, lost in darkness, when they're when they're struggling with brokenness or they're hurting, uh, our response to them needs to be uh, the hands and feet of Jesus to them, to come to them and to point them toward truth and to be willing to walk alongside them through through whatever they're going through in order to gain a hearing for the gospel and to, to show them uh, how Christ can change their lives, no matter what they're going through. And so that was, that was what this article was aimed at, was to help us look away from fear and to have both confidence in Christ and the courage to speak truth. 
You know, you must have been talking to one of our commenters. Wes M. said, we need to love those in the LGBT community and share the gospel with them while at the same time standing up for the faith and denouncing sin. Another post we shared on Facebook this week that also performed very well was an article from Christianity Today, which featured our very own Chelsea Sobolik. And here's what she said in that piece. Christians should endeavor to be known as people who will stand in the gap for vulnerable people, loving them for the long term, and committing to the flourishing of the people in our local neighborhoods. When we humbly serve, in private and in the public square, our actions say something about who God is and what He cares about. And it really resonated with our audience because our audience cares a lot about the topic or the issue of abortion, as they should. And so here's what Terry Kay said. Churches need to be talking about it, offering support programs for those who have suffered from an abortion experience, and regularly support pregnancy centers. Offer classes to help mothers become certified foster parents. Talk about the beauty of adoption. Let's talk about practical solutions. Well, I'm hoping Terry will attend. Again, we're recording this on a Thursday, but by the time this airs, I hope Terry would have attended our Evangelicals for Life event this week because I think she would have really enjoyed learning more about how churches and individuals can be active to stand for life in their own communities. So we're going to have more information about how you can watch the replay of Evangelicals for Life uh, in the show notes. But I think that this topic was so important this past week and why we're talking about it as an organization, because there are a lot of people fearful about what, what happens now with a new administration in light of abortion. That's right, Julie. Um, Our EFL event is always just packed full of practical steps and advice, people who are doing it day to day. And um, this year is the same. And we're really excited to start rolling out some of our work with Stand for Life and, and what's coming through some new things we're doing. So we're really excited about that. So make sure to check out the show notes for sure and what's coming with our life work. And also, you can check all of our social channels. We will also be posting the link to Evangelicals for Life there. If you're not already following us on social media, you should be. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash ERLC, twitter.com slash ERLC, instagram.com slash ERLCSBC. So give us a follow. And Josh, that's your look at social media from the ERLC. Hey, thanks, Julie. And Brent, that brings us to the culture section for the week. So tell us what's going on. All right, Josh, Megan, and Julie. So let's start with this, probably uh, the, the biggest news of the week that all of us have been affected by. Economic statistics that were released today showed that we are in the worst economy since World War II. So the Associated Press has this report. For 2020 as a whole, a year when the coronavirus inflicted the worst economic freeze since the end of World War II, the economy contracted 3.5% and clouded the outlook for the coming year. The economic damage followed the eruption of the pandemic 10 months ago and the deep recession it triggered with tens of millions of Americans left jobless. Now, we should be clear, uh, over the last few months, uh, we have certainly been in uh, what probably most economists would call an uneven recovery, but the trajectory is certainly better Uh, than what it was this past spring. But that should give you a sense of just how deep of an economic hole uh, we fell in once the coronavirus was around the country and uh, multiple shutdowns occurred. I mean, we truly did uh, hamper the economy. And um, 
folks have been feeling it uh, across uh, the country. I think that really does put it in perspective, Brent, just comparing it to post-World War II. And I don't know, it's hard for us to see right now that we would ever come out of it, um, still in the middle of it. Uh, It's encouraging sometimes to read a a lot of people talk about post Great Depression, the Roaring Twenties, and what could what could come after such a Great Depression um, that we're in right now. But uh, it certainly puts it in perspective of what we're facing in the economy. Yeah, I mean, I've still got friends who uh, have lost their jobs at the outset of the pandemic or when things started to get bad that are still uh, looking for uh, full-time employment or trying to, uh, you know, figure out different career pathways as a result of the, you know, economic turmoil that we've been facing. And so I know a lot of times if your life has just more or less been minor, like minorly inconvenienced by uh, some of the realities of the pandemic, that it, it's easy to want to just move on from this. But it's important to remember uh, that there are still a lot of people who are really struggling and suffering right now as a result of all of this. Well, and while we are on the news of the economy, uh, there was, I don't know, how could we say, a big development that occurred in the middle of of this week. I've called it the GameStop Affair. So uh, for those of y'all who might only vaguely remember that term, uh, GameStop is uh, usually a, a place that's found like in a strip shopping mall where you can go get all sorts of video games, videos, et cetera. Uh, It is usually considered, right, I think I'm being correct in this, Josh, it's not like the most successful company uh, in the country, right? (laughs) I mean, GameStop is functionally the surviving equivalent of Blockbuster. Like, it is just obsolete. There was a time, maybe, but it's obsolete now. Right. Okay. So, uh, needless to say, uh, it's been all over the news this week. So, to try and, and... help our audience understand what's going on here. I found a report from CBS News that uh, I'm going to read from pretty extensively because it it actually takes that to fully understand what's going on here. So uh, a meteoric rise in the share price of GameStop has trained the eyes of stock market watchers on a fast-growing Reddit discussion board called Wall Street Bets, where it appears that 20-somethings armed with cheap and easy stock trading apps like Robinhood, Moomoo, and TradeStation are targeting stocks to soar and hedge funds for takedowns. The drama has sent GameStop shares up nearly 2,000% in the past month. On Wednesday, the stock price of the troubled retailer of video games soared yet again, this time up more than $200 to surpass $350 a share. While GameStop shares have been a favorite of Wall Street Bets members, the money-losing company has been closing stores and been a target of hedge funds and so-called short sellers who wager that the shares of a particular company will fail. Wall Street Bets members appear to be widening their aim to focus on other companies that, much like GameStop, the rest of Wall Street has left for dead. Shares of former phone maker BlackBerry, LaCroix seltzer owner National Beverage, and troubled movie chain AMC have also soared after mentions on the Reddit board. So let's take a step back from this, right? You have people on Wall Street that essentially uh, invest in a company's shares falling, okay? And that's that's uh, shorting a company. The folks on this particular Reddit board have basically 
decided to team up to thwart those bets. Is that is that a good uh, summary there, Josh? Yeah, so I don't want to get out too far over my skis here because this stock trading is not something that I have any real super detailed knowledge of, but I have paid close attention to this story because it is just unbelievable. But yeah, Brent, you're exactly right. These people who are basically trading in shorts or whatever, where they're trying to, they're betting that this company or this, you know, stock is going to go down in value. And the thing is, they're not just betting that it's going to go down in value. And a lot of times, like these uh, short traders are are predatory in that they are intentionally trying to drive down the value of the stock. They'll go online, on social media, they'll start trashing these companies and people look to these people as serious investors. They'll go on television and tell you to dump this stock, that it's going in the toilet. And then they you know, they're literally trying to drive down the price so that they can make money at the expense of whoever the person or people that own this company or work for this company. Uh, you know, GameStop has uh, a lot of stores and a lot of employees. And now, uh, as somebody pointed out, if they're smart, they could really take advantage of this because they are, at least for a short time, they are flush with cash. I mean, last time I saw their stock was trading at 1,700% higher than it was uh, a couple weeks ago. And so anyway, they're flush with all of this cash right now. And if they decide to try to figure out a different business model, maybe they can have more success than Blockbuster did when Redbox came along and Netflix ended up putting them all out of business. Look, I just want to know, my boys have a Nintendo DS that they get to use when we travel and they have gift cards to GameStop. And I just want to know if those are going to be worthless now or or should we take should I take them right now and go buy something with their gift cards? That's well, I, I think that you, you're asking the same question that all these people who just bought this GameStop stock are like, is this going to be worth anything? Am I going to, like, worthless? is this a sunk cost? <laughs> but if they're smart, yeah, it, it, they, they can take this moment, capitalize on it, figure out some way to survive, at least for a while. Well, my boy's gift cards have actually sat in my wallet for over 12 months because it's from two Christmases ago. So I think they've forgotten GameStop exists. To be fair, they're 11 and 9. This is why I'm anti-gift cards, for the record. Not to take us too far afield from where Brent started, but uh, <laughs> you give me gift cards, they go in a drawer, you spent your money, I never, the company never loses money. It, it's a, it's a really a lose-lose. Also, no. just okay. want to say, this is False. such a non-partisan issue, Brent. I don't, I don't know how far you wanted to take us into all of this, but the fact that we have people from the far right and the far left all agreeing uh, about the fact that uh, the uh, what is happening right now in terms of the efforts to stop this kind of Wall Street coup is is just insane. And so, anyway, if you're paying any attention to this at all, it is a fascinating story. It is just par for the course for what we've been seeing in the 2020 into 2021 ride. Yes. Uh, that said, uh, I, I would offer this uh, note of caution. There will inevitably be a a cost here. And I thought that this was insightful. It comes from reporting uh, from the dispatch. And this is from their kind of summary of what is going on with GameStop this morning. Uh, there is a bubble that has occurred, right? Because of all of these individuals investing in GameStop. And here's where they pick up. And it's a bubble that is preparing to to pop. Uh, Wall Street Bets is full of testimony from young and low-income people who say they've staked their whole bank account on this single, insanely volatile stock. When the market falls apart, it isn't just rich people who feel the financial sting. Quote, there's a strong likelihood of many investors that end up with significant losses, near or full wipeouts on their investment, the Heritage Foundation's Joel Griffith told the dispatch. He continues, so that's a danger. 
whatever people's motivation is on these investments, there are real economic consequences, sometimes a gain, sometimes a loss. But without a doubt, this volatility should be flashing warning signals for those that are concerned with taking on enormous amounts of risk for their personal financial futures. So no one really knows exactly how this is going to end. At some point, uh, people could choose to start selling what it is that they have, and they will be able to make make out with money. But um, the stock price will eventually come down. And people that invested, I mean, according to this report, huge amounts of money in this, they could feel a lot of pain here. Uh, so obviously, this is something to be paying attention to. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a really good caution, Brent, because there you're, you're going to hear stories uh, coming out of this about people who took their whole life savings and threw it into the stock and made millions of dollars. And yeah, like some people, they, they hit it just right. Uh, it's kind of like putting your life savings into the lottery, though. It's not a solid idea. We're not trying to look you off of investing in the stock market, but uh, that kind of purely speculative uh, market chasing, is uh, it, it can be dangerous and it can ruin people's lives. All right. So while we're looking at GameStop and the online community that has driven up uh, that uh, stock price, it's probably an opportune time to continue talking about technology. And so this next report comes from Axios, and it looks at some of the moves that big tech has made with regard to politics. So they report Twitter, TikTok, and others have all banned political ads from their platforms, while Facebook and Google have started to implement political ad limits around elections and sensitive events. Most of the platforms have started taking much tougher stances on the type of speech they will tolerate from political leaders. Nearly every major Silicon Valley firm has either banned or restricted former President Donald Trump and some of his allies for hate speech or inciting violence, according to those technology firms. And, you know, this is something that we've actually encountered with our own ads. Julie, could you speak to that a little bit? I sure can. It's been it's been pretty frustrating at times. Um, we've been spending a lot of time on this episode today talking about how much the ERLC advocates for life. So we will sometimes run ads to try and let people know about the life work we're doing. And we have had problems getting those ads approved because we're using language that is deemed political. We might use the word pro-life. We might say advocate for life and the Facebook algorithm. And sometimes actual people who are approving or rejecting ads see those ads we've written and see them as political, and we have not been able to run them. So we have a fabulous team at the ERLC who can write amazing copy. And our ads analyst, uh, Amanda Hayes, is really, really good. And she has worked with our copywriters to try and tweak our language so that we can get ads approved. But to be honest, we really have struggled the past six months getting some of our pro-life ads approved for this very reason. Thanks for that, Julie. So while we're talking about former President Trump, uh, there was an important procedural vote that took place this week. NPR reports after senators were sworn in Tuesday afternoon as jurors in the impeachment trial of former President Trump, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky quickly pressed for a vote to force lawmakers on the record over the issue of the trial's constitutionality. 
The Senate ended up voting 55 to 45 to reject the Kentucky Republicans' argument that the impeachment trial is unconstitutional just because Trump is no longer in office. Just five Republicans, Senator Collins of Maine, Senator Murkowski of Alaska, Senator Sass of Nebraska, Senator Romney of Utah, and Senator Toomey of Pennsylvania, joined Democrats in voting to table the motion. Uh, essentially, uh, what this was was uh, kind of a, a pre-vote, if you will, uh, for the impeachment vote itself, uh, just to see where folks were. And uh, what Senator Paul was hoping to accomplish was to show that there are not enough votes there to convict. And just as a reminder, two-thirds of the Senate must vote to convict in order for that to take effect. So it will be interesting to see, uh, as this timetable uh, continues uh, moving forward, just exactly what will happen, uh, both with the shape of the trial itself in the Senate and then, obviously, the final vote. Moving on to coronavirus, we just read from NPR and they had another really good article this week that explained this. Uh, An overview from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, authored by three of its scientists, represents the clearest view yet of the facts behind what has become a heated debate over when and how schools should reopen. The CDC report says data from reopened classrooms show that, quote, the type of rabid spread that was frequently observed in congregate living facilities or high-density work sites has not been reported in education settings in schools. Meanwhile, evidence mounts of social, emotional, and academic toll remote learning has taken on children, especially in already vulnerable, low-income communities. Uh, This is, uh, you know, the most interesting development I've uh, seen since... um, this conversation began over schools reopening or not. And look, I think we all have to admit uh, there has definitely been a toll taken with children not being in the classroom. And that is especially the case in your younger children where, frankly, utilizing Zoom, uh, while it might be great for those of us who are able to work uh, on that platform, it's just not ideal for for children to continue learning. I know that uh parents across the country have experienced profound uh, frustration in trying to get their children back into their schools. And it's different in different parts of the country for sure. But it is one of those things that to whatever degree is possible, it's something that has to happen. It is absolutely critical. And Brent, you said, uh, you know, I know basically adults can put up with Zoom. Man, I'm sick of Zoom. All of us are sick of Zoom. It's very, very tough to live in this kind of artificial uh, social environment. And so for children, it is just it's critical. And it's something that, you know, as Christians, uh, not uh, to take a serious thing and turn it into a spiritual thing. It's something we should pray for. And Josh, you hate Zoom more than all of us. That's exactly right, correct? I just hate meetings and that's exactly right. Thank you, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it bears mentioning uh, that obviously uh, both the previous administration and the the new administration have said they want to prioritize reopening schools. And I, I believe Uh, The Biden administration has sent a request uh, to the Hill for increased funding to ensure that schools can reopen. And that's part of what the CDC is saying here is like, man, if so long as you can do uh, social distancing and take the the latest safety precautions, like there's no reason that schools uh, shouldn't reopen. And so uh, that is certainly something that we all should be praying for children to actually continue to uh, grow uh, in the classroom. All right. While we're on the topic of coronavirus, January was the deadliest month 
for the coronavirus here in the U.S. That's what CNN is reporting. And they continue, as of Tuesday, there have been more than 79,000 coronavirus fatalities, topping the previous record set in December of 2020 by more than 1,000, according to data from the Johns Hopkins University. So as we often would say, and I'm going to channel my best uh, co-host here, Lindsay Nicolay, on this, uh, the coronavirus is serious. Uh, We should all be uh, treating it accordingly because uh, it's just astounding the number of lives that have been lost over uh, the last 10 months since since we've really started wrestling uh, with coronavirus throughout the country. On that front as well, uh, looking internationally, Israel is leading the way in vaccinations. That's what Axios is reporting. Israel has administered one vaccine dose to a remarkable 44% of its population, with the UAE at 26% coming in second, Seculis at 19%, the UK at 10%, Bahrain at 8%, and the US at 7% following behind. And I thought this was incredibly encouraging. Early data from Israel suggests that almost no one who received both doses of the Pfizer vaccine has come down with a symptomatic case of COVID-19. So A, this is just proving what those uh, trials were showing, right? That you get both doses of the vaccine, you you have uh, some, some pretty good uh, uh, inoculation, right? From getting uh, COVID-19. Did I use inoculation, right? I don't think I did. Immunity uh, is the no. word. You're immunity, immunity is the word I was looking for. What is another I word? Turning to Baptist news, Baptist Press reports that Lifeway Christian Resources has entered into a contract for the sale of their building in downtown Nashville. Contract terms, including the sale price, have not been disclosed. Lifeway President and CEO Ben Mandrell said he is excited about Lifeway's future workplace and the prospects of settling into a new work environment. Y'all, I got to tell you, this this kind of came out of nowhere. I, I know that Lifeway has been doing some innovative things to restructure, but to know that they're not going to be just down the street from our office, it was unsettling news, to to say the least. I agree, Brent. When I read it, I was just kind of sat back and was like, man, that's that's just kind of a bummer. As somebody who's worked at Lifeway before. I didn't work at the new building, um, but I did the whole transition before they built their new building. And I was so excited for them to have that new space. It's it's beautiful. Um, I understand that Ben is making the best and wisest decision for Lifeway to keep it going um, the best he can. Uh, But it is really hard. And as somebody who worked for Lifeway before, instead of working in the building, I worked fuge camps for so long. It was always like so exciting to go and to think about going and seeing where people worked. And we won't be able to do that anymore necessarily. Fun fact, I actually got to go talk to some of their leadership team because when once they were in the new building, at one point they were considering opening up part of the building as a co-working space. And so I got to go present about co-working because of my experience with WeWork. So it was, a, it was an amazing building and 
I was just impressed with the spaces and how people were able to use those spaces. So I was pretty sad to hear that news. Well, and look, if there's any entity within SBC Life that is well positioned for working from home and remote working, it's Lifeway because they've been pioneers with that for the last couple of years. But we're going to we're going to continue praying for the success of our sister entity and uh, we're just thankful for all the good work that they do there. Speaking of our sister entities, another one is IMB, and they just continue to do incredible work. Baptist Press reports the International Mission Board's 175 years of ministry among the nations has resulted in the formation of, get this, 140 Baptist conventions and unions in 73 different countries. These conventions and unions are reaching their own people and are sending their own missionaries to spread the gospel. These Baptists come from myriad countries spanning the globe, from the Southeast Asian nations of Indonesia and the Philippines to Spanish-speaking countries like Ecuador and Cuba. And I just thought, you know, I wanted to highlight this because it was a great story in Baptist Press, and it, it just shows that even in the midst of this pandemic, when we all are thinking about you know, how isolated we are. The great missionary work of IMB continues. As a past IMBer, I always love hearing updates about the IMB and what they are doing. So this is exciting. And as as you're saying those about the different Baptist conventions, I believe I have been to one of the first Southern Baptist churches in Madrid, Spain, um, we were just there for some kind of partnership thing, but I believe it might have been one of the very first Southern Baptist church plants in Madrid, Spain. And I've been to a Baptist seminary in Spain. We got to spend a couple of weeks there doing some training. So I've, I felt a little nostalgic when you were reading some of these stats. I've actually never heard the term I am beer. It, it, it kind of feels like a mouseketeer, like a former mouseketeer <laughs> who's on the Mickey Mouse uh, Club, you know, show. So, Yes. All right. Uh, last story is kind of from the world of pop culture. So the Super Bowl is coming up soon. And Business Insider reports that for the first time in 37 years, Budweiser will not air a Super Bowl ad during the game. I, I always love seeing the big Clydesdale horses. Not going to get that this year. Uh, but it's for a good reason. They will instead donate funds to increase COVID-19 vaccine awareness. But they're not the only ones. The beer maker joins Coca-Cola, Audi, and others in opting to sit out the Super Bowl. So, I mean, at this point, I feel like it's just going to be a bunch of ads about uh, trucks and pizzas, which, honestly, I'm, I'm okay with. Well, I am a little disappointed that some of these ads won't be running because most years, the highlight for me is the commercials. But this year, because I'm in Kansas City and I'm a Chiefs fan, I don't care what the commercials are because I'm going to be fully locked into the game. But I am disappointed, though, because it's nice to have a little break of fun in between the in between the real game. That's right. And who are your Kansas City Chiefs playing, Julie? You know, I don't even really want to talk about that. We can just we can just not talk about, you know, he who must not be named, who is taking yet another team to the Super Bowl. <laughs> I just wanted you to say it so that way I could it'd give me yep. a reason to bring up D- Dean and Sarah's name in, in Tallahassee, Florida great pastor no. there at City Church, who is probably the world's number one fanboy of Tom Brady. Um, he is. Yeah. So, and I mean, he's Dean's- already ragged on my airport. So actually the Tampa <laughs> Bay Buccaneers ragged on the Kansas City airport, which Dean made sure I saw. I got to tell you, Julie, it's not just them. It's the whole, well, it's everyone who's ever flown in an airplane. 
I'm going to unfollow true. you both in real life. There you go. All right. So anyways, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs will be hosted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And hey, this is this is a little factoid for y'all. Uh, the Tampa Bay Bucks being the home team, this will be the first time ever that the home team is actually playing on their home field in a Super Bowl. So take that for How what it's worth. Happen? And then I just feel like that would happen to Tom Brady. That, that's true. And what's even more astounding, they decided to uh, wear their road jerseys, even though they're the home team. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyways, all right. Julie, Megan, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So this is a first because we've never interviewed someone who's been on the podcast before, but Julie's been with us for two weeks now while we are, you know, all missing Lindsay and she is at home with her child uh, on all things baby duty and certainly not vacation. But anyway, that's a story for another time. Anyway, we're excited to spend a few minutes talking to Julie Masson. Julie has been a part of our team at the URLC for several years now. She is a whiz at all things marketing, but honestly, her portfolio seems to be ever expanding. And so she's just someone that will be good. It'll be good for us to spend a few minutes talking to you so you can get to know her a little bit better and the work that she does. So Julie, first up, question we ask everyone, which is like, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us one thing that God is teaching you right now in this season of your life? Oh, man. Well, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and we just had a really rough January as a country. So I feel like I'm learning a lot. But the biggest thing that I think God has been teaching me now, but also probably over the past two years, is that what He wants from me is faithfulness. Because um, I definitely grew up in an era where if you're a Christian, you need to go do the most radical, biggest thing you can do for God. And I embrace that to its fullest, which we can talk about a little bit later. So for me, it meant, okay, God, what do I need to do? Do I need to go to Saudi Arabia and don a burqa and live there? And do I need to be persecuted for my faith? And then that's how you're going to be pleased with me. And I'm going to be considered holy by you. That's kind of how I used to think. And I'm 38 years old. So I think I've lived long enough now that I've realized by the grace of God and through a really gospel-centered church that God actually just wants me to be faithful. So that looks like probably a little bit less of a cooler life and not as much excitement as 21-year-old Julie would have thought. But look, last night, my husband and I were listening to music while we did a puzzle in front of the fire, <laughs> and we were really content. And so I guess I'm learning to be content with being faithful with the very few things I have, which is my family, my job, being faithful at my church, and investing into others, which when I was young, I imagined I could invest into 50 different people, and I've realized I can't do that. God just wants me to be faithful with what He's given me. So the last couple of weeks, we've been getting to know some fun facts about Julie, and I love getting to know fun facts. <laughs> um, and like you have a, a lot of them. Um, for example, you work in a she shed in your backyard. You love I do. running. And a little known fact is that you're a closet crafter, if, for anybody listening. No. Julie lo- <laughs> yes, Julie loves crafting. That's so, news to me. <laughs> I really don't. Just at Christmas time, I get a little crafty, and then I <laughs> shut it down for the rest of the year. See? That's a closet crafter. So, like we mentioned earlier, um, one of your fun facts is that you and your husband served with the IMB in Spain for two years. And I think, actually, one of your kids was born in Spain, right? Yes, that's right. We, yeah. we went there with one, and we had one while we were there. 
yeah, so tell us a little bit about what led you all there and what you did while you were in Spain. Sure. So um, like I said, when I was in my early 20s in college, I was very much caught up in God's heart for the nations. And I think that was a good thing. I I don't regret that at all. Um, I remember going to a college ministry um, conference where we heard someone just talk about this idea that God doesn't bless you so that you're happy. God blesses you to bless others. You know, just looking at how God blessed the Israelites so that the Israelites would basically point everyone else to to God's glory. And that was really eye-opening for me. And so I began to have this interest in wanting to serve God overseas. But that really stemmed from—I grew up in a university town, so my first best friends were from Egypt. I had a friend from Nepal. I just—I had friends from around the world growing up. Um, and then my parents were really involved with having international students into our homes. And then I lived on an international floor in college. So when, as God started capturing my heart and I was living amongst these international students, I really wanted to see what it would look like to serve God overseas. But to be honest, a lot of that was driven by, you know, Tim Labinas, who we talked about earlier, he would say, everyone goes overseas for the wrong reasons. And I think I pursued, quote, mission work or missionary work, which I hate using those terms. I pursued that out of a desire to prove to myself and to prove to God that I was good enough, holy enough, righteous enough. So I would say probably went with the wrong motives, but God used that time. So we were on um, we were on the North African church planning team. We were terrible at our jobs. Um, and people always look at me weird when I say that. We, prior to going to Spain, we both had regular jobs. Jesse worked at a bank. I was a teacher. And through those relationships that we had, we were intentional and strategic and tried to share the gospel with with people. But when we went to Spain, we didn't have regular jobs um, because you couldn't. You could not get in with a regular visa. We actually had missionary visas. And so that just made things difficult. We, we've had some really good relationships with North Africans and Spaniards, but we learned while we were there that we are best suited to be in jobs where um, either we're doing support work, which is why my husband is a counselor, and why I'm doing the stuff that I'm doing out the ERLC. This is a much better fit than being a frontline I am beer um, person doing kind of those frontline evangelistic efforts. We very much cared for the the friends that we made, but I personally just felt like a complete failure <laughs> as a as a missionary. But um, living in Spain for two years was really good for us. It really expanded our worldview to see what God is doing in other parts of the country. We were really involved with the Spanish church, and that was an incredible blessing. I got to see a church that was not part of the big culture, to not have a huge convention, and they were just faithful. Again, going back to that thing I've been learning, um, our Spanish church we were part of was really faithful with where they were at. And I'm so, so grateful for our time in Spain. All right, Julie. So that was your your time before joining the ERLC team. Let's talk about your work now. What is it like doing your job in a time of such, uh, I mean, cultural chaos uh, that we are living in right now. Cultural chaos is a good word. I mean, for us at the at the ERLC, we've had a lot of transitions over the past year, and all of the transitions hit when the pandemic was hitting. And so that's been unique, I think, for me personally. But because 
I'm responsible for our social media channels at the ERLC. There's been various times over the past year that I've had to intentionally just make sure I'm not checking our social media all the time because there's so much, there's been times where there's just been so much terribleness. That's probably not a word, but that's the best way to describe it. There's been so many things happening on social media that as a huge feeler, it's like I couldn't, I couldn't handle all the emotions I was seeing, whether it was coronavirus, whether it was the the racial things happening this past summer or the election. Sometimes I just had to step away, which was hard because I, I work in a sector that has to be engaged on social media. So I, I would say that has been difficult. Um, maybe not difficult. That feels a little too um, first world. <laughs> it's been, it's just been something I had to, I had to work with and make sure I set up boundaries. But my husband built me a she shed shortly after that pandemic really hit. And so while everything is in upheaval out there, I have a cozy little she shed to work from. And it's kind of like my little sanctuary. And I'm not sorry about that. I feel like my she shed helps me do my job better because especially when the kids were at home, and I still have one of my three kids is actually at home three days out of the week because she does hybrid. Um, she can do her schoolwork and do her Zooms in the house, and I get to come out to my office and work in peace. It's a really good fit. Okay, Julie, we've been talking a lot in the last couple of weeks. You've been updating us on ERLC social content and comments that we get from people day in and day out. Um, what advice do you have for Christians as they engage um, online? I think you need to engage in line like you would in real life. I notice that tends to be, you know, sometimes you'll you'll talk with someone and they'll say, oh, that other person, I know they're kind of rough online, but in person they're really kind. And I just, I just think that that doesn't work. I think how you act online is how you are in person. And so you can't, you can't be both. You can't be one way in person and then be a jerk online. You need to be consistent, I would say. So I guess if you're going to be a jerk online, you should also be a jerk in person. But also if you're a Christian, don't be a jerk, whether you're offline or online. That's my advice. That, that is sage advice, Julie. I try. Okay, Julie, we, we kind of touched on this earlier because obviously one of the reasons that you live in Kansas City uh, is because it's just a short drive up to Iowa to get to the uh, airport there. <laughs> but if you didn't live in Kansas City, where would you want to live and what would you be doing? Well, I feel like my friend Jonathan Howe and my colleagues at the ERLC would like me to answer Nashville. But truth be told, if we couldn't live here in Kansas City, we would love to be back in Spain. So we would probably go there in a heartbeat. But also, I wouldn't mind living in London. I just, I do. I love all things Europe. It's a great, I didn't mind being in postmodern Europe. It's, I thought it was easy to get into spiritual conversations with people. They weren't weirded out by you, even if they thought what you believed was super archaic and crazy. I love Europe. And we would go back there in a heartbeat. Julie, actually, I'm I'm really glad that we wrapped up there. One, because I know that I give you a hard time about all of your fascinations with European things. But my um, 
I think the thing you just said is actually really helpful for a lot of Christians to hear, which is that sometimes when we think about uh, other parts of the world that maybe uh, we would think of as post-Christian, that seems really intimidating. It seems like uh, that's a world where Christians uh, would be ostracized or really would just suffer in and, or have a hard time uh, living in. And you you being in what we think of as the secular West, you know, and having lived in Spain, you, you know, y- you have firsthand testimony of what it was like to be there as a Christian and your, your family not only survived, you, you just said you would go back. So I think that's going to be really encouraging to a lot of people. And I would say in Spain in particular, because it's it's a kind of nominal Catholic country, I was able to have really good conversations with my best Spanish friend there who um, she would probably say she's a Christian. And that also opened up, that opened up better conversations than even talking with maybe a nominal, nominal person here in in the state. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to to engage in spiritual conversations in Europe. Don't be scared. Again, sage advice. So Julie, thanks so much uh, for letting us sit down and do the interview with you here today. That was uh, really helpful. And the work that you do at the URLC is indispensable because without you and your team, it's fair to say a lot of people wouldn't know about the work that we're doing. So thank you so much for all of your great work in all of those areas. Oh, thank you. It is my pleasure. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things we've been talking about with one another. Julie, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. All right, I'm going to recommend another podcast. I know I did that next week, or last week. Not next week. I can't go into the future. Yes, sent herself Um, into the future. (laughs) I do have another podcast. If I get to come back next week, I've got another one. But for this week, I'm recommending another podcast specifically for parents. It is called Bedtime History. If you are a family that likes history, this is a podcast. Our family loves history. So I listen to this podcast, um, not every night, but I listen to it with my boys. And it's short. They're not super long. They can range between 8 to 18 minutes. And he covers a wide variety of characters from history. And what I like about it, it's not the most enthralling or engaging podcast you'll ever listen to. But that's a good thing because your children are listening to them at bedtime. There's no noises. There's no music. It's just someone reading a story about a character from history. So he's covered everything from the, the Marquis de Lafayette, um, history of Minecraft, Clara Barton, history of Thanksgiving, Guy Fox, all kinds of things. So my boys really enjoy it. I enjoy it. If you love history, check out the Bedtime History Podcast. Julie, that's really good. Can I just say how great it is that you have a breakfast podcast and a bedtime podcast? Like that is just, well, uh, the symmetry there is just too much for me. Um, Brent, you're up next. Tell us what's on your mind. So I I highlighted a story last week from the BBC uh, for the life group that I lead at church. And it was all about why you are more creative in a coffee shop. And I realize that there's probably a few of us, uh, both on this podcast and who listen to this podcast, who miss just being able to randomly go into a coffee shop, sit down, do some work uh, with a nice cup of coffee, and and just kind of you know whittle the day away. Obviously, we we can't quite do that uh, in the midst of a pandemic as much as we would like. But from the story, this is this is why uh, it says we are more creative. Quote, there are many ways coffee shops trigger our creativity in a way offices and homes don't. Research shows that the stimuli in these places make them effective environments to work. The combination of noise, casual crowds, and visual variety can give us just the right amount of distraction to help us be our sharpest and most creative. 
So I was thinking about that, and I really do. I, I miss working in coffee shops. Well, uh, during Christmas, I stumbled upon a, uh, a YouTube channel that this person or individuals, I'm not really sure, uh, has made where it's just various scenes from like history. So like you can go back to a Roman library, uh, a, a Victorian coffee shop, or my personal favorite, a living room at Christmas in the 1940s. And uh, they've overlaid like some music or jazz or some of them, it's just kind of like a crackling fireplace. But it kind of gives me the same kind of feels that I would get in a coffee shop. And for those of y'all who have been longtime listeners, you probably know that my uh, son, Rhett, is a huge fan of trains. There's even some of these videos that are shot or I guess placed in a moving train which he absolutely loves. So that's that's what I brought uh, to the virtual lunchroom today. Brent, I just want to commend you on two coffee weeks shops. in a row. Like absolutely excellent takes from you coming, coming into the lunchroom. So that is, that's the kind of content people are here for. And uh, I will echo what Julie said because, man, I hate meetings, but I love working in coffee shops. I love meeting in coffee shops. I love reading in coffee shops. And Me too. I can't wait. I can't wait to get back, yes. and I don't want to go and do that in a mask. So for now, I'm just sitting at home. Well, Josh, there's there's one on there that like you especially need to check out. It's actually the newest video that's been uploaded. It's the cafe where J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter, and it's three yeah. hours of just sitting in that scene. So that's for you, bro. I'll be there for the rest of the day. I want that. So as Liz Lemon would say, I would I want to go to there. Oh. Thank you for the Liz Lemon reference. I appreciated that. I know no one else will, but I appreciated it. There you go. All right. Well, Megan, we're all in the lunchroom. It's your turn. Tell us what's on your mind. Okay. So I hate to bring another podcast to the lunchroom, but this is just something I've been telling everybody about. Um, something I'm in this year is the Bible recap, Bible reading plan. Um, and I just wanted to do something different this year with my Bible reading and be a little disciplined more than normal. And so the Bible recap, it's a reading plan you can get on the Bible app, which is great because I love a checkbox and it's so helpful. And then at the end of every day, there's a podcast that goes along with it where um, Tara Lee Cobble, she just recaps what you've read. And it's so helpful. Like, especially like deep into the Old Testament um, of Bible reading. It's chronological as well. Um, it just helps so much to just recap what I've learned and actually digest it, I feel like. So that, if you need a good resource for that, the Bible recap is amazing, and I'm telling everybody about it. Once again, at least one of us has something spiritual, and the rest of us do not. Good job, Megan. You win the award this this week. Well, I am really proud of Megan. And honestly, you know, personal Bible reading is the thing that probably more than anything else has changed and shaped my spiritual life. So if this is a resource that can help people do that, like absolutely, definitely check it out. Having said that, uh, I'm going to have to get somebody on Julie's team to give me the stats because we keep recommending podcasts that people should listen to. And it makes me wonder, are, is is this hurting uh, Is this hurting our podcast and recommending so many? But the truth is like, we just nope. want to be a conduit of good resources to you guys. <laughs> uh, th these are, these are worth, like, worthwhile and worthy 
uh, resources for you to invest your time in. And I actually have one more this week. Sorry to let you down, Julie. I thought I was going to bring something funny. But this week, I started reading a book that has been talked about a lot in evangelical circles. It's called Reading While Black. It's by uh, Esau McCauley, who is a New Testament scholar that studied under uh, N.T. Wright. And I think he's now a professor at Wheaton College. I started reading this book this week, and so I can't even give you a tremendous amount of insight about it. The, the thing that struck me is that he's dealing with one of the most difficult uh, issues in evangelicalism and in still in modern-day America about, about race, and he's specifically looking at things related to race and the church. And what struck me so far is that not only do I find his insights to be valuable and true— but he is so careful and so fair as he is engaging with other traditions and as he is navigating uh, the contours of a really, really difficult conversation. So uh, Reading While Black, it's a book that a bunch of people uh, put on their end of year or best of list at the end of the year last year. And it's one that I definitely plan to uh, to finish over the next uh, week or so. And so anyway, I found it already to be helpful, wanted to commit it to you. Well, that's going to do it for today's show. We just want to say, as always, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate not just the fact that you tune into the podcast each week, but the feedback uh, that you guys send us related to the things we talked about, or pieces you found helpful, other recommendations, sometimes fact checks. We really, really appreciate all of that. If you like the podcast and want to help us spread the word, would you consider sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review? I know a lot of you guys have done that, and it has made our podcast even more accessible to more people on various platforms. And so we really, really appreciate your support in that way. And for Julie and Megan and Brent and myself, we want to say thanks so much uh, for listening and being a part of the ERLC podcast. And we look forward to being back next week with more content.